Hi, I'm Stuart Spinks and welcome to episode 117 of my podcast, Beekeeping Short and Sweet. With the weather turning cooler and rainy, it's time to turn my attention to the new unit, preparations for the honey extraction at the end of the month. I want to have a question for you. Have you ever been stung? Beekeeping Short and Sweet, a beekeeping podcast for the inquisitive beekeeper with a short attention span. A beekeeper, in fact, just like me. I'm grateful to Honeypaw Hives for sponsoring in part our podcast for this season. Honeypaw Hives, as I'm sure you're aware, are Polly Langstroth Hives, and we're setting up an apiary full of their hives this season, courtesy of Honeypaw. Check out their range of hives and other equipment on their website, and I'll leave links to all of the websites in the show notes as usual. Honeypaw Hives, designed by beekeepers for beekeepers. Welcome back once again, and the British summer continues to do its thing, meaning it's raining once again. It's been a wet week, really. Since the weekend, we've had some quite heavy showers mixed in with a little sunshine, but generally it's been quite cloudy and considerably cooler. I've been out inspecting where and when I could, but to be honest, the bees are not too keen on me crashing around when it's wet and humid, so it's been quite intense at times. I would say this week... I've had more stings than I've had all season, and it's just not pleasant. It doesn't matter how long you've been keeping bees, the sharp jab of a bee sting is always unwelcome, but actually, I don't think all stings are equal. It's interesting that sometimes when you're stung by one of your honeybees, it's almost as if you've been jabbed by a needle, but the pain is instantly gone. There's no swelling or long-lasting itchiness no problems at all. The flip side of this is the less pleasant sting that makes you jump and dance like some kind of maniac, dropping your hive tool and cursing the colony with threats of robbing all their honey, or worse still, total destruction. Now I'm not totally serious about the whole destruction thing, not totally, but some of them are really quite nasty. Most of the time, stings are the fault of the beekeeper. Let's face it, sometimes we're clumsy and don't always pay attention to what we're doing, and that's when we put our fingers and thumbs where they shouldn't be, and we get stung. I remember some time ago, and I apologise to anyone who's already heard this story, but some time ago, and I may have already mentioned it in a previous podcast, but it's an amusing and also interesting situation that illustrates nicely the effects of a bee sting or two. So if you're new to the podcast, maybe you haven't heard this. So some years ago, I was carrying out an inspection on a series of hives in a lovely lapiary that unfortunately I no longer use, mainly because of the distance. Anyway, I was carrying out usual weekly inspections and the weather turned a little stormy. The bees generally don't like being messed around when the weather is bad, so they began getting a little grumpy. The particular hive in question wasn't previously known as a problematic hive, and so I continued along my merry way inspecting all the brood frames. Midway through the inspection, I inadvertently set both thumbs onto a worker bee at exactly the same time. So that's both thumbs, two bees. Needless to say, I was stung on both thumbs, right in the middle of that soft, fleshy centre of each one. After yelping and dancing around the apiary for a few seconds, obviously I was alone, otherwise I would have 
manned up and acted as if nothing had happened. But on this occasion, being alone, I was able to let fly with a few expletives and shake my hands as if I was doing some kind of strange jazz hands dance. Once the initial shock of being stoned, both thumbs had subsided, I realised that, interestingly, the pain in my right-hand thumb had almost completely gone, yet the pain in my left-hand thumb was still raging. In fact, the pain had travelled down my thumb into my wrist, and I could feel it tracking up my forearm and into my elbow joint. I wonder how many beekeepers can relate to that feeling. It's really odd how the sensation of being stung on the finger or thumb tip can translate into feeling it actually move to another part of your body. Anyway, that was enough for me at the time. I closed down the hive and jumped back into my car. Those were the days of the Skoda Octavia estate. Anyway, I digress. I removed my gloves and checked out each thumb. The thumb on my right hand had a very small dot where the bee sting had punctured the skin and a small circular patch of very faint redness, but nothing else. It didn't hurt at all. My left-hand thumb was an entirely different matter, however. I describe it to people as a Tom and Jerry thumb. When I was a kid, I used to watch the Tom and Jerry cartoons, and Tom would always end up getting injured, and sometimes it would be his hands, and particularly his thumb. I guess cartoon cats have very human-like appendages. Anyway, on this occasion, Tom gets his thumb hit with a hammer. It immediately swells up like a balloon, throbbing bright red, and you can see the pulse making it swell up and relax back down again. Well, that was exactly what was happening to the thumb on my left hand. It had swollen up to twice its normal size, was red and hot, the pain sensation was still present, and it had tracked into my wrist and elbow. It had swollen up so much, the skin was stretched tightly enough to make my thumbprint disappear. Honestly, I thought it was going to burst. About 20 minutes later, you would have wondered what all the fuss was about. Both thumbs back to normal, and the pain of the sting had all but gone. Now, I find that really interesting. How on earth is it possible for my body to react in such a completely different way to being stung by bees from the same hive? Here I have to pause and mention two things. Bee stings can be really dangerous. The remote chance of suffering an anaphylactic reaction to a bee sting is very real and you should consider what you would do if this were to happen to you. The second point is I'm no expert in honeybee venom. And what I'm about to say is anecdotal and unscientific. Maybe over the winter months I'll do a little more research when I have the time. But that said, the conclusion I came to about the difference in reaction to the two honeybee stings, to my thumbs, is that each and every honeybee has a slightly different makeup of venom in their stings, and that the reaction of my body to those stings changes each and every time I get stung. Again, I need to say I don't get stung every time I inspect my bees, and to be honest, because I don't get stung very often, it does still come as a bit of a surprise when I do get stung. If you're a beginner beekeeper, don't suddenly think you're going to get stung all the time. Just take your time when you inspect and be gentle with your bees. Crashing around in a brood box is the very best way to wind up your bees and end up with sore fingers and thumbs. For those of you not familiar with the anatomy of the honeybee, the sting is held inside the base of the abdomen. 
The abdomen is made up of segments, and there are a total of nine segments. But if you look closely, you'll probably only see around five or six. To get technical for a moment, these are numbered A2 through to A10, with the final few segments, A8, 9 and 10, being a lot smaller than the other segments and held within segment 7. So A7 is where all the workings of the sting are held, and thus it gets the name the sting chamber. That sounds like some kind of horror film location to me, but we'll move on. An interesting point here is that the sting sits in the position that would otherwise have been the position for the ovipositor, the device for laying eggs. It follows then that only the female bees would have a sting. This is where you can really impress or fool your friends by grabbing hold of drones like you just don't care about being stung because the drones, being boys, don't possess a sting. They get their kicks in other ways, but more of that gruesome story another time. So the sting chamber holds all of the mechanics for stinging hidden inside it. That is, until the bee is either trying or has been forced to sting. This is where you may see the hypodermic point of the sting emerge right before you feel it. But the sting is so much more than just a needle. It's a complex, beautiful set of separate parts that form a potent weapon. So how does it work? Well, to keep it simple for now, the sting apparatus consists of a mixture of plates and muscles with a duct that leads from the venom sac all the way down to the pointy end. That's the technical term for the lancet. This, rather than being a straight tube needle, is cleverly designed with backwards pointing barbs that, once pushed into your fingertip, grips and doesn't easily come out. It all works beautifully by combining the contraction of muscles against the various plates which are either fixed or move to drive the sting home and allow the venom to move from the venom sac through the duct into the sting and ultimately into my thumb. Interestingly, in order to sting, the bee actually angles its abdomen to flex the various muscles to be able to drive the sting home. Mostly the sting's positioned in a downwards angle, but I often see workers in an alarmed stance flexing their exposed stings in an upwards direction. So I think they're able to sting both upwards and downwards, making them a potent defender of the hive. It is, of course, the ultimate sacrifice, as they die when they sting us. So I like to think they really don't want to sting. It's mostly beekeeper incompetence that causes the pain. There are, of course, hives that seem full of honeybees that actively seek out the beekeeper to try to sting. But that's another story. Hopefully, you're not picking up too many stings this season and you're enjoying your beekeeping as much as I am this summer. Changing the subject entirely, this rainy weather has meant I've had a few days of window watching and time spent at the unit with the ongoing layout and design of where I actually want to put everything. I mentioned last week I was having a wall built. Well, that all went incredibly well. I have some pictures to share, so check them out on the Patreon page. It was a stud wall, the timber-framed affair with boards fixed to the outside. I deliberately created an oversized doorway measuring just over a metre wide so I can get the kit through without smashing my fingers and knuckles against the door frame. So the back of the unit is to be the clean room, a location for all the honey extraction, storage and bottling of honey. I'd like to get back to making some more of my honey granola, 
but I think that will need a little more thought before we take on anything new. The biggest drawback of a honey room is for a smaller commercial operation such as mine, it will only really be used twice a year. Firstly for the spring oilseed rape extraction, and then again in early August for the main summer honey crop. The rest of the time it could sit idle, so the intention is to use it to store the honey, and when we need to jar we'll have a lovely clean room to get the honey into the settling tanks and through the bottling machine into clean jars. These again will be stored in the clean room, ready for labelling and delivery. I really need to measure the dimensions as I can't quite remember what size it is at the moment. I'm going to guess and say it's about five or six metres wide and about five or six metres deep. Compare this to my home extraction setup of three metres square and you can see I already have a much larger area to work in. The inside walls of the clean room will have a white washable PVC sheeting attached to it, an important food production essential that we need in order to make sure that we get the maximum health and safety ratings from our environmental health officials when they come calling. The floor is already washable, being painted with a tough floor paint, and all the fixtures and fittings will be stainless steel, such as the work tables and sink. There is a small run of kitchen units already in place, fitted by the previous tenant, so these will remain for the near future while we get ourselves organised. I already have the extraction kit in place, but I'm still not convinced of the layout. I need to get everything washed down and tidy, and then set the various bits of equipment in place to see what works best. There's easily enough room for eight stacks of ten supers on movable dolly boards against the side wall, so for now there's plenty of room. Next up, will be the weighing table and the uncapping setup, which I use over the appy melter, and then straight into the extractor. I'd really love to buy a sump and pump to move the honey from the extractor to the straining and settling tank, but again, that will have to wait. For now, I think what I'll do is just pour it into a bucket and then lift the bucket and pour it into the strainer. That said, I would like to protect my back as best I can, so I may do a little research this week while it's still raining. Along the stud wall, there's enough space for a run of benches for bottling and labelling, as well as storage of jars ready to be delivered, and I may even be able to get some shelves on the wall to hold things like labels and accessories that always used to go missing in my home extraction room. All in all, I think the clean room will be perfect for what I need right now. Oh, and I'm fitting a PVC curtain in the doorway to keep out any dust instead of an actual door. It will allow me to wheel the supers through and also see what's going outside the clean room. Talking of which, the front part of the new unit will be my clean workshop. We still have the other workshop where Pete helps out and that's where all the cleanup will take place. For the unit in Norwich, I'm going to hold a little bit of stock and use it to make up frames and adding foundation, that kind of stuff. Nothing that's going to create a huge mess or kick up a load of dust. I'll also hold a small supply of equipment for other beekeepers. Certainly, we'll have our ProVap units, jerry cans of feed, and of course the range of microscopes that we have on our website, but also maybe some wax foundation frames and other essential equipment for when you run out and need something immediately. It's also very handy for carrying out some microscopy work and, of course, producing our videos over the winter months when the work with the bees quietens down for the long haul. It doesn't seem possible that those dark days are approaching, but it won't be long. 
And on that very cheerful note, we reach the end of this week's podcast. Thanks for hanging around until the end of the podcast, and do keep the comments coming. Please take a look at our extra content available on my Patreon page. That's www.patreon.com forward slash Norfolk Honey. I'm Stuart Spinks, and that was beekeeping short and sweet. Mm-hmm.